Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, everybody, what's going on? It is April 22nd, 2021. Uh, my name's Nick Rome, and this is Human Factors Cast. I'm joined today by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf over there. Hey, Nick. How's it going, man? It's another wonderful Thursday. Hey, Blake. It is a wonderful Thursday. You know what we got going on for uh, programming notes here? If you haven't already, um, there is a uh, <laughs> there's a healthcare symposium coverage that we've been doing over the last week. Man, it feels like we got a lot of stuff coming out. So Elise and I have been at the conference all week. Um, we're we brought you a recap. Uh, it's in your podcast feeds already. We did that last night. Um, there's a couple more interviews to come, so stay tuned for those. There's one already out with Rebecca Butler, um, who is who works at MedStar Health. Definitely worth checking out some of the interviews. We're bringing you a lot of different coverage. Um, so, like I said, more interviews to come. It's a great time. Go listen to them if you haven't already. Uh, but we know why you're here. We're here for the Human Factors News. Let's get into it. That's right. This is the part of the show all about human factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. We could be talking about supervisory control. We could be talking about simulation. We could talk about the design process. A little bit of everything. As long as it relates to the field of human factors, it is fair game for us to sit here and talk about. Blake, what do we got up this week? So this week, Nick, there's helicopters now on Mars. So recently, the Mars helicopter Ingenuity took the skies of Mars for the first time, and it did so fully autonomously. So this Ingenuity helicopter was designed for autonomous flight out of obvious necessity, since the time delay between Ingenuity's pilots at the Jet Propulsion Lab, or JPL, and the Jezero crater on Mars makes manual or even supervisory control absolutely impossible. So the best folks at JPL practiced and did this all through simulation, and then they were the hope was they would be able to handle the helicopter and everything from testing and simulation here on Earth. And here on Earth, simulations are very critical for things like this. So it's a critical tool for many robotics applications because it helps you not have to rely on using expensive hardware, potentially breaking it, and you can just do stuff in the in the moment and test and solve problems. And once you think you get everything right in a simulation, you can then go and actually test it out in the real world. But in this case, you're testing a helicopter on Mars, so it's a little bit higher stakes. Testing the Mars helicopter under conditions that match it, and you wolf they found were just not even possibly replicable on Earth. And JPL has flown a bunch of different engineering models in Martian atmospheric conditions, and they actually ended up using active actuated tethers here to try and mimic some of Marge's gravity, but there was really no way to know how the helicopter would perform outside of simulations until they actually flew it on Mars. So with that in mind, the Ingenuity team has been heavily relying on simulations since it's the only tool they can get to actually give them a perspective of what it's going to be like trying to control this thing or autonomously fly it. So Nick, how in the world has this happened? This is just nuts to me that we put a helicopter on Mars that could be autonomously flown and provide us footage back here on Earth. It's nuts, right? Like, you and I were talking about this before in the pre-show that it's kind of nuts that, yes, we're on Mars again. We've been on Mars. We're on Mars again. And it's so weird to see stuff going on on Mars, and now there's a helicopter involved. Um, So, <laughs> so yes, uh, I kind of 
um, buried the lead there at the top when I said supervisory control, simulation, and design process. We're going to be talking about all those three in relation to the um, helicopter that is now on Mars. Uh, but if you're just asking for my general reaction, yeah, it's freaking nuts, man. This is cool. Uh, yeah, what do you think about too much <laughs> a helicopter on Mars? So the thing that really blew my mind is like thinking about the fact that we've got a rover up there that's able to take a lot of high quality video of this thing actually functioning on Mars. And when I thought about it and looked at the design, it's such a smart and sleek design in and of itself that it just kind of blew my mind that this thing was even able to fly in such a tough atmosphere and that the doubly so and i think we'll talk a little bit about this as we go through kind of the deeper human factors related points but the fact that you would have to rely on testing something basically only in simulation and you're gonna fly it autonomously that just has such far-reaching implications like as a as a human factors person as somebody that worked on it that would be working on one of these teams i can only imagine the amount of kind of like well we've done as much as we can on simulations on earth but really we're just gonna have to put it out into the wild on mars and see how it performs that's a giant leap of faith in some ways yeah and i mean they did do things here on earth to prepare for that um you know we can talk about those uh with with simulation and the design process they made sure that they got it right here before they moved it over there and there's still some guesswork involved um Let's start with the supervisory control aspect of this, because this is a unique situation where you can't really have supervisory control of this helicopter, right? I mean, that's how you would do it normally with a drone um, here on Earth. What you would do is you would have a drone, you'd be controlling it, and you'd be able to react in real time to what's going on. Um, and so, you know, you have sort of... Um, this reactionary piece that you can't necessarily do from afar. Uh, it's it's a totally different game because and and the reason this is is obviously the the time difference that it would take to receive that feedback. The drone would already be on the floor, um, and so like I don't know. I thought it'd be kind of cool to go through some of these supervisory control um, tenets of human factors, if you will, and explain why they are not you know able to be applicable here in this situation. Um, Blake, what's what what you got? So at, so the way to kind of think about this, like Sheridan laid out a long time ago, I think in the late 90s, this is where this paper is from. But anyhow, there was like three main problems that exist just with super, like the implementation of supervisory control on top of adding automation to it that were going to really affect how people are able to maintain any kind of supervisory control. But before we dive too deep, let's do the best scientific job we can to kind of operationally define what we're talking about when yeah. we say supervisory control. So that's just a general term for control of many controllers and control loops. So imagine a UAV that needs to be able to be past control back and forth between multiple different entities or multiple different controllers. So somebody's flying it at one point, they need to hand it off to another controller or somebody can request control of it. That's the kind of like simplest definition of it. And you can imagine that adds in a lot of different potential issues you know you know losing losing control of something or line of sight problems or even mismatches in an understanding of you know did i hand this thing off to another controller there's a lot of things that can go wrong now let's kind of like add automation on top of that can you imagine this issues that would be running rampant just from 
multiple people trying to control one mechanical object. Um, and then if you put automation in the loop, it adds kind of another layer of complexity. So when, right. we, th- when we think about this in terms of putting something now into space where the latency is going to be so bad or so impossible to really understand, you can see how supervisory control just from a basic definition is going to be nearly impossible if just not even a, a good thing to even try. Yeah, I mean, you talked a lot about the the different controllers that go into this, the different systems that are controlling something, automation, different humans, uh, different operators. There's also the control loop, right, which is the the process by which I was describing. You, you see the feedback or you get feedback in some way from sensors on board. Um, in the UAV example, you would, you know, see an altimeter. Um, you would have a rough approximation of what you're you know, where in space you are, right? There might be a camera on the drone where you're able to take in information as the pilot and you're able to react to that information, right? And and the biggest thing with this um, helicopter on Mars is you don't have a control loop. If you, I mean, you do, but it's the time delay between when an action is taken and your reaction to that is so great that you would not be able to correct anything that needed to be corrected. Um, and I mean, they do have control loops when it comes to like the rover, right? They can move it, um, you know, inches at a time if they need to get out of a precarious situation. But in a situation where you have the helicopter, you can't do that because it's flying at such a velocity or it's it any kind of critical um, mistake could... Uh, cost, you know, you're, could cost NASA a helicopter. Let's put it that way, right? Because if you think about it, you know, if, if let's say there is a rock that the rover can't get around, well, that's not that big of a deal, right? It's stuck on a, it, the wheel got stuck on a rock. Well, they have to back it up and move it and go forward. And that can be done in a loop where they can understand exactly where the rock is. And there's no consequences because there's no immediate threat. Right, where a helicopter, you have um, the threat of potentially, you know, if, if there's a, uh, there's no gusts of wind on Mars, right? Like <laughs> that was one of the biggest. No, yeah, that's true. So, so um, the the big thing with that is that you know, it could just fall flat and and land incorrectly, and you, you couldn't. There goes really, your blades. You're that's done. It. That's it. You know, I mean. Does the ingenuity have an arm that they can go over and like try to prop it back up? I don't know. I'd imagine, but um, so so that control loop just in general is completely gone. You don't have that with I mean, that's something that you have in typical supervisory control. Um, you want to talk about these three uh, aspects here of supervisory control as well? Absolutely, yeah. So these are like kind of this is one of the areas that I think is really interesting from past work on supervisory control. So the big thing that you've kind of talked about, if we don't have the control loop, and even if we did, we're gonna just experience this massive loss of under of the a person's mental model of making an interaction through a piece of software trying to control something that's you know millions of miles away. Um, and the fact that that one-for-one interaction is not there. So you're just going to lose somebody's ability to understand or be able to kind of even do mental calculations on behalf of the machine of, like, what they could do um, in terms of interaction. So you lose out on somebody's mental model and kind of being able to align with it. But I think the biggest kind of thing to talk about here is this is an instance where you have to, like, as a human factors professional, you, and definitely in grad school, I heard a lot more about 
kind of levels of automation and figuring out as as you scale automation what that means for an operator in the loop and something in this case is that this is that top tier of fully automated systems because there's just no way that a human operator because of the parameters of what we're doing the distance the the lack of communication and all that kind of stuff without a without like full autonomous control and simulations of that autonomous control you would not be able to kind of accomplish the things you need to or that you're hoping you can do with this helicopter or putting anything else on Mars for that matter. So this is one of those instances where just like the cost benefit analysis in this case, like from the human factors perspective, leans much more heavily in terms of automation leading you to need to do these kind of simulated tests. Yeah, those are great points. Um, you know, I, I think I think that's right. There's the automation that's going to have to do the heavy lifting here. Humans don't really have that much control in this situation. Um, and, you know, I, I think, I don't know. It, it's, it's hard to, for me at least, to apply these principles to this situation because they're just absent, right? I mean, yeah. you talk about a, a traditional uh, control loop where you get that feedback back and you do get all these um, principles, right, of, of uh, supervisory control. You get all of them. And so, uh, but, but with this rover, you, or with the helicopter, at least, you don't. Um, you know, anything else to add for supervisory control? Because I do want to get into the simulation bit, because this is where a lot of the magic kind of happened with this. I think let's move to the simulation, because, I mean, this is how this whole endeavor was even possible was being able to both simulate things in real life here through the design, through different models that JPL had put together. So where would you like to kick off with simulation for this particular yeah, well, one? Well, let's just talk about simulation in general. Um, simulation in general is a way for you to um, estimate something without serious cost uh, to the actual thing, right? So think about like flight simulators. This is where pilots fly planes in a simulated environment so that way if there's any critical errors they're done in a simulated environment they get that practice for the real thing where hopefully they won't commit those errors or if anything goes wrong they'll be able to react appropriately so the advantage of being in a simulator is something where you know you can um you can certainly uh react to things that are uncommon and that way you have that built up muscle memory for those things that are uncommon and you can react appropriately when it actually does happen in the real world. Um, there are uh, just a side note really quick. There's a whole simulation track um, that they came out with in the healthcare symposium this year. Uh, I attended some of those talks. It was very interesting. So if anyone uh, went to that conference, go check out some of those simulation chats. They were very cool um, breaking down why it's so important to have at least that simulation aspect in a hospital. You can imagine, but it's there. Um, so let's talk about the simulation environments for this helicopter and what they did. Um, so they actually developed this over at JPL. Um, they looked uh, at a system basically um, that they've been using for a number of missions. I think they said uh, 30 years. So it's been around for a while, but they took that framework and kind of built their own helicopter simulation based on that framework. Um, and they use their own rotor models. So this is kind of getting into the technical bits of it. So this is more or less how the helicopter will react in that environment um, based on this model, right? So there's uh, they have the aerodynamic models that feed into this simulation 
And a lot of this at this point sounds like technical babble, right? This is all different models that fit into the simulation. If you think about it like a, like if you think about a flight simulator, there's these um, air simulation models that uh, will make the plane react in different ways, right? So the more accurate you can get to how air actually impacts the vehicle, the plane at that in that instance, uh, the closer you can get to what it's going to be like in the real environment. And so they tried to model that with these frameworks. Um, and then, so, you know, the, the whole question of whether this is valid and the validation bit of this simulation, what, you know, what does that look like? Um, any, any thoughts so far, Blake, before we get into the validation bit? I mean, although this is like, this is a lot more of technical sides of things. It, it really is interesting because it informs the entire design. I mean, without this yeah. kind of for, this formal testing and giving you, and it, it also kind of pulls on JPL's past knowledge of already having stuff that's de deployed on Mars, gathering information in terms of weather and how the atmosphere interacts. And so being able to actually simulate it before you start building or even start trying to build, you know, simulated models that act like Mars's. Um, atmosphere and what the helicopter might experience i mean it cuts down on cost and from like a just like a human factors engineering perspective the capability to basically before you even get to building anything have an idea of what design's going to work best based off of just early simulation and modeling that's already existing through jpl's kind of um either models and designs they've done in the past so it's it's kind of just a awesome feat of engineering in general um but what it, what really did they do in terms of w when was enough in the simulations in terms of validation? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. So you were talking about the design process, and we'll actually get to that process in a minute. Um, and it's very interesting how this simulation and that design process kind of intermingle. And so what they basically, I mean, to them, it was like close enough. Uh, for them, it was what did we understand enough about this uh, problem space um, to where we can actually test this. Then what they did was once they had enough information for them, um, they actually went on to test the simulation, the like virtual simulation in a physical space. Um, they did it in a vacuum cha vacuum chamber. So they were flying this helicopter in a vacuum chamber and uh, they were replicating sort of the Mars atmospheric conditions within that chamber. Um, and so, you know, these tests were, you know, done before they actually tried to fly the helicopter. They were looking at um, sort of the system identification, which is looking at the properties and dynamics um, and how how the thing in the physical environment actually reacted to the uh, environment versus how the thing in the virtual environment reacted or with the models reacted to the um, environment and what was the delta between the two how is the physical environment different from the simulated environment and how you know can we use that information from the physical environment to update our models and produce a better simulation um so they did this in several stages you know they're, they're doing things that they can't necessarily fully replicate until you do this in the real environment and so it was a lot of going back um back and forth and one of the biggest challenges for them was kind of this uh the martian gravity you can't you know we they can simulate a lot of the same stuff here on earth yeah. environmental conditions they can you know the 
everything will work exactly as it does, except for gravity. Gravity is different. And so, you know, the way they try to get away with this is um, attaching a little string to the top of the helicopter and, and pulling up on it so that way it reacted a little bit, you know, lighter to uh, Earth's gravity than, you know, to kind of simulate the Mars gravity. So it's not it's perfect. It's you can, right? But yeah, yeah not it's not perfect, perfect, but that's that's how they did it, right? And so that's kind of where they were coming from with this validation process. Um, you know, and, and they were talking about what you can do to compensate for the physical testing that you can't do on Earth. Uh, that's kind of the the um, the string on top of the helicopter that I was telling you about that pull up to simulate Mars gravity, which I thought was a kind of a clever... Um, uh, old-fashioned solution, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Just tie a string to it. It'll be fine. Yeah, and then so the the question came up, right, whether or not this was, um, are they relying on simulation too much? Um, but it's their only option. So it's... <laughs> what else can like, you really do at that point? Y- yeah, you have to keep testing. Um, so I don't know. Do you have anything else to add on simulation? There's, there's a couple more bits in here about um, when did, you know how far did you push the simulation and um, what they learned from it. So we can get into those, but did you have any thoughts at this point, Blake, on the simulation aspect of things? I guess what, what I found interesting that I, I wouldn't have thought of because when you say helicopter, I really just think about like, okay, it's just, it's got to lift off the ground. There's going to be a lot of kind of constraints that we, like you said, we can't necessarily simulate to a T, but we can add crazy strings to it or we can like push it into, you know, these, chambers that should be able to at least give us something close to what we're modeling in our simulation program side but then there's the the other aspects of this thing because it's not just meant to be a helicopter it's got to be a sensor it's got to have sensors on it and have cameras going as well so like trying to test that stuff to a point where you feel like you've tested it and pushed it as far as you can um, and then feeling confident that like okay we we've developed sensors and camera equipment that we think will be able to survive you know this kind of harsh environment that we can't do anything else to simulate it in terms of doing it on earth or doing it in models through programming it must have been really interesting to kind of have to figure out like okay sensor wise what do we need and what's the maximum we can really push it to so that it can do something different than what the rover is doing in terms of what it's gathering so the the like limitations of simulation here i mean at some point you do just get to this place of it's it's as good as we can get it now we really have to make that jump and actually push it out to test it on mars itself yeah we can just throw another helicopter on mars if it doesn't work and that kind of goes into the design (laughs) that kind of goes into the design process so why don't we jump into that a little bit because this is very different from like a design process that you might have here uh for designing a product in uh on earth um because you know in that iterative design process you would have a build test update repeat right that you'd have that kind of framework where you would test something you'd go out to the backyard test the helicopter um but they can't do that here and so um basically the engineers were saying they had to get as close to the final product as they could in that first iteration before they built it because um you know, obviously the first iteration is not what's sitting out there on Mars now, but they got close enough to where they could test a prototype and understand the wind dynamics or the, the aerodynamics, I guess, of, of Mars. Um, and then they updated their design based on that. I'm not sure exactly how many designs they went through before it 
they ultimately sent the uh, the final um, prototype out or the the final thing out, right? It's not a, a prototype. Um, but yeah, I just found the design process and, and the limitations on the design process very interesting for, um, you know, for designing for something on Mars, right? That's kind of crazy. Yeah, because I mean, the I'm so used to just thinking about the software side because that's really where I think I've spent my most time. I really don't think I've had too much impact on hardware itself. But I could imagine it being a little it would feel hamstringing because even on other things you developed maybe through JPL in the past, it, you could, you know, go to creating actual physical models or rely on stuff that you've already created before, maybe sent to other planets potentially. But even then, I wonder if the, the iteration was a lot to do with, or had a lot of benefits because they were doing so much virtual simulation. So if you're able to do things in that regard and kind of like take models that exist of, you know, other types of aircraft, whether it's helicopters or whatever they started with, and really test them in virtual environments, if the kind of like design really fleshed itself out there digitally before they even moved um, to worrying about the first initial build of this thing. But at the end of the day, like you're saying, you you would have to build it and then test the physical aspects of it because there's only so much at this point that a virtual simulation is even going to tell you until you get that first iteration of materials for that first hardware product. Yeah, so uh, it would be kind of irresponsible of us to not talk about the control aspect of this thing. How does this thing actually get controlled? Um, and the way I understand it or the way that this... Um, this chief pilot of Ingenuity is talking about it is that they have to pre pre-program um, flight paths into the helicopter. So it will kind of do it based on uh, the, the operator's sort of flight path that they send to the, <laughs> to the helicopter. And they're starting small, right? I mean, we've flown a helicopter on Mars, but what that flight consists of is a three meter rise and a three meter descent. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's really what we've done at this point, but to take off and land and test to make sure that the aerodynamics do in fact, uh, you know, check out, um, where that's not going to be critical if it falls down because it'll just land and you can try it again. Uh, hopefully you'll have another shot if you just go up and down, uh, without, you know, eventually they would like to take this thing out and survey, like you said, Blake, with the cameras and sensors and everything. Um, and that's going to be a very different flight than up and down. So, um, you know, talking about the controls and how that interacts with the design process, you know, there, there's a bunch of different parameters by which you have to control. It's not as simple as like just using a joystick. No, you have to specifically um, program in exactly what you hope the helicopter will do, right? So, for example, one thing that wasn't included in some of the initial designs was um, the cyclic control on the upper rotor. Uh, they didn't have that, and they found out that they needed that based on some of the simulation and models and prototyping. Um, they found out that that's a control that they actually needed to have control over because it's pretty important for, um, you know, uh, the disturbances that you, they thought they might see on Mars uh, from the aerodynamics perspective. So they needed to have that extra control authority over the um, upper rotor as well, so which, you know, so that was done mostly in simulation, but, you know, they, they kind of see... Um, they saw that in the prototype. The prototype only had the bottom control, uh, and so they realized they needed it. And it, it's kind of cool to see exactly that 
relationship, right? They, they test these things and realize, oh, we need a control for this thing because it didn't exist. And that is something that could really impact the, the flight path or the, the flight dynamics of this um, helicopter. That Yeah, that's very true. And when they try and even move forward with this thing, I feel like because the, the vertical liftoff and landing, that makes total sense as a starting point. But I know that the terrain can be kind of very different right on Mars than anything you would be able to even simulate realistically because that was a constraint they mentioned about the the simulations in general especially in how it impacts sensors on top of just the rotary components so going from here I mean basically it's it even though they've done a lot of simulation and testing I can imagine that first kind of mapping out a set of waypoints for where they're going to try and fly this thing and do its first survey that's really going to probably yield a lot of different information, potentially about how changes to the design will be made or to help kind of inform the next kind of iterations of this thing. Because although Ingenuity is definitely the first of its kind, like they even do mention throughout this, that there's already some in the works for larger helicopters that can do a little bit more, carry more sensors, um, or even can break down into various components um, outside of just being a singular unit. So it's it's just mind blowing the the stuff they're able to like come up with and the fact that we're able to although we're not you're not directly under any kind of supervisory control through autonomous programming we're able to collect and transmit along with you know fly things on a different planet and be able to relay that kind of stuff back uh, to continue feeding you know different models and stuff like that for the atmosphere for collections whatever it may be. Yeah, you did mention kind of the future here, right? We could talk about the next step. So what they're doing now is these flights on Mars will actually send the pilots and engineers data back, which they can then feed back into their models with real world, real Mars world data um, that will then help improve some of the simulations that they can run here on Earth. And uh, with that more data, they can understand basically how their flight paths might be impacted by real Mars world data. And so it all feeds back into itself, right? The more flights this thing gets on Mars, the more data they have to feed into their models that they can use to fly this thing better on Mars. It's, it's, it's all kind of cool how it all feeds in together. And I love it. Um, There's your okay. actual feedback loop right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except for it's very delayed. And anyway, uh, anything else to add to this wonderful news story about flying a helicopter on Mars? I... I'm just blown away by it. I really loved seeing some actual footage of this thing flying on Mars because that just was so much it, – it brought this home so much further because they do – if you haven't checked out the article that we posted on both the blog in the description of the podcast, everything like that, it's worth checking out because they do a breakdown of the design and development of this thing as well as you get to see a few shots of this thing flying on Mars, which is just so phenomenal. Yeah, I was speechless when I saw it. I was, it was just absolutely so cool to see. All right. Well, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting this topic. And thank you to our friends over at IEEE Spectrum for our news story this week. If you do want to follow along, we do post links to the original articles uh, in our Slack as we find them. And we also post them on a, uh, a little news roundup every week. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. 
All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons, especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you, keep the show running. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Uh, hey, Blake, speaking of patrons, uh, fun fact, if fun we fact. if we get two more patrons at the Human Factors engineer level, that would allow us to upgrade Restream. And what that means is that we can now stream on Facebook. We can do uh, some other interesting things that the free version doesn't allow us to do, like upload some of those uh, those interviews that we did on more platforms so more people can see them, more people can enjoy that content. It also allows us to do some more fun things with the graphics. Like, you know, we can put that Patreon commercial without me having to screen share in uh, <laughs> in um, Restream right now. You know, it's it'll just be built in and it'll be something that... I don't even have to think about or manage while we're doing these live streams. Um, also, we could do an intro, which would be cool too. And that's just two more patrons at the Human Factors Engineer level. So if you're able to, uh, we uh, we do give back for that. You know, that's that's Human Factors Minute right there. That's, that's in your pocket if you help support us at that level. Um, all right. Well, why don't we go ahead and switch gears and get to this next part of the show. It came from... It came from... Yes, that's right. It came from this week. We're talking Patreon. We're talking Discord. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. And today we're going to feature two that came from our very own Human Factors communities, one from Patreon and one from Discord. Uh, if you'd like to join us, um, please you know, ask your questions in Slack and Discord, or if you're a patron, ask us there too. Um, this first one here is from a patron, but they asked to remain anonymous. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this without any identifying details, and it'll become obvious as to why we're not going to mention names here. Um, and Blake, I know you have some thoughts on this one. So let's, let's go ahead and read this one. So I have a question. Um, please don't use my name. It's about one of my professors. Don't want them thinking I'm talking about them. Um, it's about the Think Aloud protocol. So... Basically, one of my professors does not like the fact that the think aloud or does not like the think aloud protocol. Uh, they think it's more of a hatred towards think aloud protocol. You can hear the irritation in their voice uh, when they talk about it. Uh, but this person's been reading, uh, listening to audiobooks, human factors engineers, uh, and a few of them actually recommend using the think aloud protocol while conducting usability studies or usability tests. So which is it? My professor says the Think Aloud protocol is ridiculous because it violates Chris Wickens' multiple resource theory. I can see why he thinks that, but of all those books I've been reading say otherwise. What do you both think? What do you, what, when you conduct a usability test, do you use the Think Aloud protocol? Or maybe it's Talking Aloud versus Think Aloud. I'm pretty sure it's one of those. Blake, uh, this is a fantastic question. You wrote an essay back to this patron, and I want <laughs> I to. I want to get your thoughts on this. 
All right. So I am going to break down some of the stuff that I wrote because I it it did strike me odd that you're having this kind of interaction with an educator. Uh, so I want to kind of tackle it from my perspective and be a little bit fair about it. So uh, my response here. So to be fair, from a purely academic perspective, your professor, absolutely correct. So taking into account the impact of talking in a way that's unnatural while doing any kind of task, complex or not, will require somebody to reallocate mental resources. That makes sense. That's very in line with Chris Wicken's thoughts and feelings there. So however, this feels like a very biased perspective to have as an HF professional, but doubly so as an educator, since as Nick does point out at some point, this method's use is useful in an it-depends situation. And I also feel this is very academic to feel like this is this is a problem, you shouldn't use it, where I've come from more of an applied background. So there's kind of a difference in just thought here. Uh, so I use and encourage my students through Design Lab uh, to try out Think Aloud, Think Aloud protocols and cognitive walkthroughs in their usability tests, uh, but there's specific reasoning for why I suggest this method. So in early stages of product development, when you only have an unvalidated persona and maybe some limited user or market engagement, using Think Aloud protocol can be super informative. So encouraging people to express themselves and verbalize their self-talk can give you insight into your design, the workflow you're creating. But more importantly, it's going to show you how your end users actually think. And not just about a product, but a problem that they're experiencing that your product or service is supposed to be solving. So another use case here is that I, I in earnest, would be really interested to hear what somebody's professor would have to say in this case. Um, but when you're working with an SME, for instance, from my experience, this application of Think Aloud protocol here can be even more invaluable because you're working with somebody that's in a brand new domain, potentially, that you know not very little about and you're working with an expert within it. And in the case of most SMEs, they can't really tell you the what or the why that's directly associated with a task or a process they're used to doing. However, if you're putting them in front of a new product that has to do with a specific workflow, software, let's say, they'll likely bring in their past experience that they have as an SME. Uh, so you'll get a better insight into kind of what's going on in the background, how they think about their problems, what user needs actually might be there that haven't been identified. Now, let's talk about a suboptimal situation where you wouldn't maybe want to use Think Aloud protocol that's much more in line with what your professor is saying. So this is in this case, it's really, to me, when you're focused and your main driving force is metrics. So if, for instance, you're, there's an interaction within a team or with a piece of software where that, if that interaction is not done timely or gotten right, you can have severe consequences. Yes, you don't want to be testing for that or introducing kind of any kind of erroneous stuff into your usability testing because it'll give you inaccurate data. Um, another example is an A-B test, right? So you'll want to have multiple points of comparison, both qualitative and quantitative. And at this point, you may want clean time on task or any kind of other important performance metric. Um, and you'll want to avoid introducing, again, any of that unnatural behavior so that you don't get an unclear picture. However, this is kind of my absolute personal take on how I apply HF methods. So it's kind of up to you how you do it in your own work. Um, in a situation where I cannot use Think Aloud protocols, I will often, and I have to observe from a distance, I'm going to often use kind of uh, observation techniques like looking at people's body language. They're, are they making a face? Are they changing or sighing? In their, does their voice change? 
and I'll use this during usability tests to kind of give me some stuff to talk about in a post-test interview. So still some of the similar concepts from Think Aloud Protocol, really trying to analyze what may be going on during a scenario, but using that afterwards. Uh, but anyway, so that was a long-winded answer. Basically, I think it, it really just depends on what you need it for. And are you in a situation where metrics are more important than understanding an operator? Uh, but Nick, give us your perspective on Think Aloud Protocol. Is it even useful? Yes, it totally is useful. Um, my answer was nowhere near as long as yours. <laughs> yeah, so I know. Basically, um, in short, yes, it depends, right? Um, I think the Think Aloud Protocol is, an, is a really incredibly useful tool when you're trying to get the insight of a user um, in a certain scenario. I think where it does break down uh, and where it does violate this multiple resource theory is when you are looking at, you know, where cognitive load is critical, is mission critical, and measuring that load is is what you want to do, right? Because then if you're having them do an additional task of think aloud as you're doing it, it, it impedes that, um, that other task that they're doing. So, uh, you know, if my kind of rule of thumb is if it's not like a life and death kind of situation, then and and if they can afford to do it cognitively, then the benefit of gaining that insight from the users is completely worth it. Um, I think that it it outweighs the performance hit that they get from uh, actually having to think aloud as they're doing something. So that's again just my experience as well. But I mean. You know, I, I think there is value to each of them, and it it sounds like a total cop out answer, but it really does just depend on what you're trying to measure and uh, whether or not it's appropriate for the situation. Um, and I totally agree with your assessment, Blake, that it is inappropriate of a professor to uh, knock on a technique when it does serve purpose in some circumstances and not in others. Uh, so that's that's my not so long winded answer of <laughs> this question. Gotcha. All right. We have another one. This one's from our uh, Discord community. This is advice on how to land internships. Yeah. Advice on how to land internships. This is from Shaq S., presumably Shaquille O'Neal. Hey, I'm not sure if this is the right place to post this. Yes, it absolutely is. If you have questions, post them in there. Uh, But I was wondering if anyone had any tips or advice on how to land an internship in Human Factors. I'm a first-year grad student and in an online Masters of Human Factors uh, curriculum, and it's been quite difficult to find and or be able to land anything because of my lack of experience in the field. So I think this is a great question, Blake. What do you think? How, how do you how do you land an internship? Honestly, I found this really really hard to f- to come up with anything that I felt was super meaningful. I do have some ideas, but it was one of these things where like I haven't thought about the fact that. If you're on in an online program, how much of a different landscape that puts you in? Because like for when I went to grad school, I picked a program based off of research they were doing and the fact that there was internships embedded in it because it was an in-person program and yada yada. So for this one, I had to really kind of scratch my head like what would you even do in this situation? The kind of the things that I threw out uh, to Shaq in our Discord was considering reaching out to the professors you have 
on in your program to see if they know of any opportunities either in the field or if there's a way for you to remotely get involved in whatever research they're doing. Because if it's in your program, there's probably a high probability that you could be able to do something helpful for them, whether it's like going through transcripts or doing lit reviews. And so although that's not maybe direct paid experience, that still is experience nonetheless working for somebody in like a reference you'll have. Um, also, a big plus for me when I was in grad school was being a part of the student HFES, Human Factors and Ergonomics Association, or society, excuse me. Yeah, um, because that just led to other internship opportunities being introduced to people in different fields outside of aviation, which was my focus in grad school, um, and led to a lot more opportunities just to network with people, hold volunteer positions, just more resume builders. So the And the other, I guess, flip side to that is there are probably local communities to you, regardless of where the actual campus are or the campus is located uh, for your master's program or for your program in human factors. So checking out that kind of stuff will help you as well. Kind of just build that network so you can find new opportunities. Yeah. For me, my experience, I got really lucky with my internship. It was very remote um, and it was not very competitive. Really the only people I was competing with were the people in my cohort and uh, they all fortunately got internships elsewhere. And so like I was kind of, the, there was no competition when you know everyone left to go back home and do their internships, um, and I just stayed there and did that there, right? Uh, and so it, I got very lucky with that. Um, you know, I know a lot of people have success uh, beyond the approach of just applying everywhere and see where you get in, right? That's <laughs> brute force it, um, <laughs> and you know, regardless of of location. If you're if you're desperate for work, you could do that certainly. Uh, but the, I know a lot of people have success by attending things like conferences uh, and making connections there. You know, HFES has a whole career center that they source internships from every year. I know it's been a little bit weird with you know the virtual format and everything. I think they still do it. So it depends on your timeline. If you're still looking later this year, then that might be an opportunity. Um, and they usually know that. That's where they get a lot of their students. It's in October, and so they'll probably hire for the following summer. But you know, that's that's just a, that's one strategy. Um, there are other conferences that do this as well. Uh, but if you're looking for specifically human factors, that's probably one of your better bets. Uh, the whole job market right now is just completely messed up because of COVID. Right? You know, we're kind of at that tail end of working from home. Um, you know, and it's there's this uh, remote work being largely accepted. So that brute force approach might actually work out in your favor if maybe you apply all over. You know, like there there might be some lenient rules right now if you were to apply, is what I'm saying there. Um, then there's also another resource which I know not many people actually take advantage of is the the um, career center on campus at the university, or you know they they have online versions for this as well um but they can hook it up sometimes sometimes they just got like you know a perfect fit for you and it's because no one else is going to that resource but it's a resource that you pay for as a student it is a resource that is available to you and what the hell try it out anyway see if it works you know that's that's kind of my two cents on this that's a really good point nick like using different resources that you're already paying for is just a brilliant way to go 
One thing I would tack on that I didn't throw in the message and I will do after the show is sometimes in this instance when you feel like you can't get an opportunity, it's time to stay, take a step back and see if you can make an opportunity for yourself. So there are things out there that you could do and write about or produce something from on your own that could be like your own personal project, something that you can show tangible evidence of, you can tell a story about, you can make social media content out of to help build that credibility for yourself. Because we live in such a digital time that the more that when you're kind of met with these closed doors or ways you can't figure out the way in, kind of creating openings for yourself can be really, really helpful um, and take you places you're not really expecting to go. Yeah, agree. All right, we got one more up here today. Uh, this one is interesting. It says, uh, how do you guys measure your performance or keep track of your metrics? This one's from Reddit. This one's from the user experience subreddit from Agliamielga? Yes. Uh, okay, great. Uh, not a UX guy myself, but some context. I'm a technical manager for a professional services unit in my current role, and my company started expanding its UX team team lead and I have some great working relationship looking for at least doubling the size from four to eight by Q2 of this year, mostly targeting junior and senior hires. Given the nature of work that my unit is involved in, we are expecting to have more collaborations with those folks down the road. So I've been invited to join mid interview rounds to help vet candidates and such. I obviously don't understand enough of this field qualitatively to judge the work, but I can infer some insights from the, quote, numbers they talk about in the outline of job responsibilities. I just want to make sure I'm not missing anything or coming up with wild assumptions that are totally off track. So it got me thinking, do people in UX have more or less standardized ways of reporting their performance or some sort of commonly used metrics like OTE in sales or customer satisfaction rating and support? How should someone like me understand and judge those? Are there some example CVs or resources that I can look at? Many thanks and love the work you do, uh, by the way. All right, Blake, uh, there's there's a couple different facets of how we can tackle this. I want to say, one, are there any standardized things that UX or human factors pr- uh, professionals use? What, like, what can we report for ROI? And then two, what tools do you use to manage your time? Let's do that. Got it. Yeah. So the the ROI thing is very interesting. Uh, I've got two perspectives on it. So one was KPIs that were measured on my performance. So just key performance indicators from my previous startup that I worked at. It was basic. It was very basic stuff, man, like things that I didn't particularly agree with. Uh, But it was like time spent on projects and delivery rate of expected timelines being, you know, within or you know it's one of those things that if you have a timeline and it's attached to a kpi people want to see it earlier so things like timeline products delivered and then the acceptability of design into de- acceptability and translation of design and development time that was a big one um and then overall time spent in meetings that was another one that was captured uh but in terms of managing my own time or using metrics to kind of see how I'm doing. That's one thing that I've really gotten big into in the past two years, which is every Monday I come in at seven and I give myself 45 minutes to plan for the entire week. So doing stuff like blocking off my calendar for development tasks, design tasks, pre-planning meetings uh, that I know I need to have and giving them limited amounts of times with hard stops for myself. That's that's kind of what the, the metrics that I've used for my own 
benefit, like seeing, okay, if I, if I'm able to plan early on in the week, give myself, you know, determined amounts of time to complete development and design tasks, am I meeting those markers from like a, a binary yes or no perspective? Um, and then are meetings that I'm having productive? Now, when we say productive, are they not going overtime and we're actually getting action items out of them that can be completed within the timeline we have for a larger portion of a project? So a lot of my stuff is much more me-based. It's not so much team-based um, just because I'm the one managing my own time across a lot of projects and I have a lot of responsibilities. But I'm interested to hear from your perspective on both of these, Nick. So from a like time management perspective and from how you think about the ROI of your work, uh, what does that really look like for you? Yeah, so that these are both really good and really challenging questions, I think. So the thing for me is that at a glance, no, I don't keep track necessarily of anything that I do to where I would be able to report that internally, right? That's not something that is required of me here. People understand my importance and, and the importance of the role, really, and um, kind of what I do. And I think that understanding is helpful for me not having to track those things. They can see when a deliverable comes through, it's obviously had a lot of love and um, care has gone into it. So, but I, I, I don't want to answer this just like with KPIs um, and, and just with like time on task or anything that you've done, you know, time on project or time in meetings, the things that you were talking about, Blake, I think those are fairly um, standard across companies, I would imagine, at least in some aspects, you know, or at least the, the micromanage companies. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I will say there are some things that you can do. Uh, I'm thinking from like the agile perspective. If you have an agile framework that you're working in, um, and not every team does and not every job role has this, so this only applies really to that, but there are, you know, something along these lines might help you think about it that way. So there are different things by which you can have input to. So you can have input to things like requirements. You could have inputs to design. You could have inputs to... Um, you know, various user stories or anything like that. And the more uh, you have input to, you could track, but that's something you actively have to do. You have to say, look, I had input to this user story, that user story, another user story. And you can say things like, uh, this month I provided input to four user stories and 10 requirements and five uh, designs, right? Like you can say those things month over month and, oh, I've you know, contributed a little bit more to the user stories this next month. Uh, that's one way to track it. I don't think it's a particularly helpful thing to do uh, just because of the nature of the role that you're in. Um, you know, I, I I don't know of any standardized uh, metrics that UX people have, you know, UX or human factors. I know there have been efforts from people I know even to track the number of designs they've created the number of mock-ups and wireframes and deliverables and all that stuff and those are important numbers but really at the end of the day um does it matter if tracking those numbers takes away from designing a better system for the user that's kind of where i'm at with that in terms of tracking my own time i have a running list it's just a piece of paper that i write down and cross off 
I'm I'm not as fancy as Blake. I don't sit down every Monday. I just have a piece of paper next to me at my desk that every time a task comes up, I write it down. And then when I finish it, I cross it off. And every once in a while, when it gets a little busy on the page, I'll just rewrite out my list and organize it appropriately. Um, but that's really how I keep track of my own time. I don't, uh, I just kind of work on whatever's on the list. And sometimes I write priorities next to them and circle them if they're really important, you know, like a priority one and cross it off when I'm done. I did, um, for the longest time, I kept a little notebook where I would write out the list. And then once I got to the end of the page, I would, uh, or once I've crossed or sorry once i've hit the end of the lines on the page i would write them all over on the next page and cross off everything from the previous page so that way any work gets carried over to the next page and it's just a way that i can go back and flip through some of these tasks and see exactly what i've done um i should get back to that because right now it's just a piece of paper but again like my role has changed a little bit to where I don't have a million tasks on my, a million small tasks on my plate. I have five really big tasks on my plate, you know, at any given time. So that's kind of the way I think about it. Um, I know it's kind of a long winded answer for a fairly easy thing. Uh, anything else to add to metrics, Blake? I just want to say, I think you bring up a good point about like when you, if you're trying to think about it from a designer UX perspective, like the number of mock-ups or number of designs delivered, that kind of stuff, like like that's great, but that could be good or it could be bad because there is really no standardized meaning for those things. Like just because you went through a bunch of iterations doesn't mean the design's any better than a team that went through less iterations but maybe thought more about it. So it's I think it's really hard to even come up with good UX metrics, if you will, and pot- potentially for human factors metrics is at the same time. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear if anybody's listening and has kind of like metrics of performance they have to hit at their job, whether it's human factors, UX, whatever. It'd be cool to hear back from the community kind of what they're dealing with now at work, just to even inform how I track my own time or how I talk about my own work. Good point. All right, let's get into one more thing. This is where we have a chance to just talk about one more thing. Blake, what do you got? Oh, man. This is, I always forget we're going to get to this part of the show. It always trips me out at the beginning of the show. We start with the news. I get really confused. Well, you can Uh, talk about that for your one more thing. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) One thing that did come up today that I'm just, I'm really excited about. I talked about this, I think, in the pre-show. Yeah, because we haven't done the one, the banter portion. But it, it was, it's been a fun week because uh, this is one of those like cycles in my schedule for Design Lab uh, the platform that I teach UX bootcamp stuff through that I've gotten new students and it's always refreshing, especially like just getting somebody fresh and new who's like coming to design or coming to research from a completely different background and just being excited and be able to connect with other people and looking forward to being able to see them grow over time. Like one thing that somebody asked me today is like, how do you even get inspired? And it came up that part of a major part of my design process and to some degree my development process is listening to music. And it wasn't really about being able to do anything other than unplug my mind from what I deal with day to day, whether it's meetings or like incoming notifications for emails or notifications on my phone and how it was just a fun time to be able to connect with somebody else on the impact that music can have in your day-to-day life and your day-to-day work. So that's kind of my one more thing for this week. It's just the impact that that has. 
So I I have one more thing for me. It's it's a. Uh, have you ever had a um, a situation where you are just busy, 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 completely have every second of your day kind of planned out, and then all of a sudden everything just stops. Like you you've turned everything in. There's nothing else to work on, and um, it, it's just it stopped. Have you have you ever had that? Oh yeah, a bunch of times. It, it feels weird, man. Like I just had that happen to me this week and um, it, it felt really weird because we were doing all the coverage of the healthcare symposium. We were going, going, going. And, um, you know, it, I think it was yesterday. I f- had finished all the stuff that I could up until that point. And I like got it and even work too. You know, I got up and I was just like, what, what, what am I doing? I like, I have time to, for myself. This is weird. Uh, and I just thought about how strange that feeling was. And that was my one more thing. All right, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. You can hang out with us on our Slack or Discord or get to us on any of our social channels. If you want, you can visit our official website and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, consider supporting us on Patreon. We have uh, two more to get to that Human Factors engineer level. We can greatly expand our uh, visual and reach, our visual presence and reach. Uh, Two, leave us a five-star review on your podcast medium of choice. And if they don't have it, leave it on our website. Three, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is really helpful for us uh, because that's how others find out about the show. Uh, As always, links to all of our socials and our website is in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstorff for hanging out with me. Uh, Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about helicopters on Mars? Oh, if you guys want to talk about helicopters on Mars, please reach out to me through social media anywhere at don't panic ux as for me i've been your host nick rome you can find me streaming on twitch tuesdays at 11 a.m pacific for office hours and across social media at nick underscore rome thanks again for tuning into human factors cast until next time it it depends. depends Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.